Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. Uh, this week, I am joined by Hilary Apple, who is the Podlich Family Professor of Government and the George R. Robert Fellow at Claremont McKenna College in California. Um, we discuss the recent memo that she wrote for Ponars called Are Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin Partners? Interpreting the Russia-China Rapprochement. Let's get started. joined today by Hillary Apple, a Polish family professor of government uh, at Claremont McKenna College. Uh, Hillary, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So we talk a lot about Sino-Russian relations. That's one of our favorite topics around here. But we usually talk about it as you know, the strategic relationship, the, the interests of the sides. But I think you make a, a pretty compelling argument that the personal dimension matters a lot too, and specifically the, the relationship between Xi Jinping and, and Vladimir Putin. So maybe walk us through that a little bit. Why should we uh, pay attention to the, to the personal interaction between these two leaders? It's pretty clear that they want us to pay attention to that interaction. So if anything, they have been extremely proactive in promoting the image of them as friends. So it's not so much that you know we try to look deep into this relationship, but they are broadcasting this relationship. And the photo opportunities are just a way to capture our attention. But what I wanted to talk about was the way in which that goes beyond just the smear publicity stunts, but that in fact, it does reflect a deepening of ties, both economic and military. Mm -hmm. And so I guess there's the chicken and egg question, which is, is the personal relationship a product of those deepening ties? Or is the deepening ties a product of that personal relationship? The photo ops started uh, a while ago, but they really intensified in the last 18 months. So my guess is that the desire to project an image of good friends is uh, something that followed the recognition that they're benefiting from deeper economic ties. Economic integration starts to really ramp up mm -hmm. in 2015. So that's a year after the sanctions regime is imposed on Russia, a year after uh, the recognition that if Russia endorses the Belt and Road Initiative, this will be an important move toward alleviating certain tensions that may arise in their competition over regions like Central Asia. Mm -hmm. So even if there's this deliberate campaign to emphasize the personal relationship, what was the term? Soft serve diplomacy, soft serve power, something like that. Um, the the pictures of, of Putin and Xi uh, sharing ice cream. What message are they trying to communicate? Why are they trying to emphasize the personal nature of this relationship? The soft serve diplomacy, I think, was something Elizabeth Wishnick, oh, uh, right, who mentioned right. in reference right. to Andrew Barnes' uh, idea of a, of a great term. The one that seems to get bantied about is the term dumbling diplomacy, mm -hmm. because he was so uh, visible in having all the camera crews when he was teaching President Putin how to make dumplings, how right. to make uh, these steamed buns. So the ice cream was also her example. But the, the reality is uh, that this budding bromance has been documented and encouraged. And of course, we know that uh, President Putin is the master of trying to promote and project images to his own population, but also abroad. So it's something that probably he has taken the lead on. And this is something that President Xi has found to be useful as well. There is some sense that those meetings are probably resulting in policy choices because 
leaders emulate the policies of other leaders, and mm-hmm. that can span so many different areas. And there's a large uh, literature and political science on this, but it's almost common sense, right? Yeah. You have problems that you're solving. You look in, and see how other people have solved those problems. And if anything, most people would look at President Putin's management of the domestic environment as masterful. Mm-hmm. You know, his staying power in and of itself is a testament to his understanding of how to consolidate power and to remain relatively popular in a very difficult situation, a very difficult environment. So mm-hmm. probably President Xi wants to look at President Putin's track record and strategies for consolidating power. And those meetings, those informal meetings and those discussions are not only in front of the cameras, but there's also further further interactions that allow them to to share ideas. So have we seen evidence of this, for example, on the, on the question of, of Putin's strategy for legitimation? Have we seen evidence that the Chinese side is, is learning from this, that they're emulating some of the Russian approach? There was some indication that the Chinese Communist Party wanted to study Russia very carefully to understand to understand what not to do. Right. Gorbachev is kind of the negative example, right. the, but we the, don't want there, to There's no emulate. question that China has been trying to follow uh, Russian events for their own advantage. But the consolidation of power, um, I think the public relations campaigns would be an important mm-hmm. example. But they're also uh, learning from each other in terms of... So are we of... going to see uh, President Xi like hunting tigers or anything like that? <laughs> um, Probably not. Maybe not that, but I bet there will be other examples of valuable public relations campaigns to help cope with domestic problems. And if the economy starts to uh, decline further, you look for other sources of political legitimation. So there's no way that someone wouldn't look to the Russian example for this because, again, the staying power is certainly important, right? The number of terms uh, that he's been in power and even when he was prime minister, he was still you know, very much in control. So I think that would be the envy of any world leader, Democrat or autocrat, to remain as popular as he has and to have the approval rating that he has. And so President Xi is, is, I'm sure, observing that very carefully. So yes, there may very well be not hunting tigers, but there might be, there might be some sense to build an image uh, through a public relations campaign that shows that he has uh, authority mm-hmm. and he is relatable and that he's got many personalities that will appeal to different kinds of constituents. Just hope he keeps his shirt on. So, in terms of the of the substance of the Sino-Russian rapprochement, yes. um, there's this big debate um, that we've been having for years now about whether it's a, a, an axis of convenience, as Bobo Lowe famously mm-hmm. termed it, or it's something more than that. And I think increasingly the consensus, at least in this town, is that it's more than that, that there's real substance behind it, um, and the personal connection between Putin and Xi presumably plays some role in that, but there's more to it. What's your own sense of how lasting and how significant the rapprochement that we've seen between Russia and China since, well, let's say since the Ukraine crisis um, really are? And let's say that you know Russia's relationship with the West improves for one reason or another. Is that going to have real implications for its relationship with China? So the term axis of convenience is catchy, and it certainly made me smile when I read it the first time. I, it's a, a nice turn of phrase, but in reality, it's much more than convenience. There are many factors at play here. There, There's balancing going on, uh, counterbalancing as the U.S. continues to allow its relationship with China to deteriorate 
and with Russia to deteriorate, uh, there are reasons for those countries to work closer together. And some of them are material and very clear. Again, access to capital after the sanctions regime denied uh, Russian corporations access to capital markets, China was able to step in. Now, of course- To some degree. To some degree. There were the four bank, the major banks that did not want to risk consequences or sanctions from the U.S., but the development bank right. was the willing to do Right, the state-owned banks it. were willing right. to do so it. Right, so the state was willing to step in and provide capital because certainly the success in its export strategy requires it to have accumulated a mass, you know, uh, amounts of dollars. And so mm-hmm. to be able to start employ those resources in ways around the globe rather than at home where you would have had major inflationary mm-hmm. pressures makes a lot of sense. So there are material reasons that justify actions that we see. So right. it can be geo- on both sides. On both sides. So it can be geopolitical, geostrategic in terms of balancing, but it can also be looking for investment opportunities mm-hmm. that earn more than what China can get, you know, holding US Treasury bills. Right. Because, you know, at least historically, the risk premium in Russia has been higher. Right. But again, China needs access to natural resources and mm-hmm. Russia wants markets for those resources. So together, uh, they do have mutual interests and, and it's not just to um, to put on a show for the international yeah. stage. I think there are real material interests. There are geostrategic interests and um, the growing strategic competition between China and the United States only adds momentum to something that started in 2014. Yeah. Something that in some ways started even before that. Uh, you know, I think one of the, in some ways, underappreciated successes of the Yeltsin administration was the kind of normalization of the relationship with China. Um, border demarcation, which, you know, was finished on, under Putin, but had begun earlier than that. Um, right. And it's been noted that even though this wasn't just President Xi's first international visit was to Russia, his predecessor as well mm-hmm. made that his first foreign visit. So no, this is not brand new, but the intensification yeah. and the um, the need mm-hmm. for uh, sources of capital mm-hmm. outside the West really uh, accelerated, I think, this, this relationship. And of course, President Xi, these are his initiatives and he's been the leader mm-hmm. since 2013. Yeah. Well, and again, this comes back, this brings us back to the question of for a long time, Russia's pursuit of, of normalization with China was done on its own terms. It was for these kind of pragmatic reasons, the need for investment, the need for security along the border. What Absolutely. I, th- I think what shifted after 2014 was that it did take on this more kind of, uh, maybe zero sum isn't the right term, but it, it was much more about insulating Russia from pressure on the part of the West. Um now, maybe it's hard to envision relations between Russia and the United States, Russia and Europe improving anytime soon, given the whole litany of problems that we face. But I think in an ideal world, Russia probably doesn't want to be facing a long-term generational competition with wealthier countries on its Western borders. So at some point, you know, maybe we go back to a world in which there's a more normal if competitive relationship with Russia. Does that mean that Russia now decides it wants more distance from China? Or is this a sort of long-term shift uh, in seeing China as a, not only a source of investment, but as a kind of strategic partner? In my mind, it would depend what you see China's longer term role in the world is. So I see it as an ascending power that uh, will have a more important relationship with countries all over the world. All over the world, countries are redefining their relationship with China as it becomes an economic powerhouse and not just a regional power, but a global power. So I don't expect 
that China will be dismissed, even if U.S.-Russian relations improve significantly. Yeah, I think that that's probably right. Even if you know, a lot of Russians that I've talked to about this will say something along the lines of, "We know our relationship with China is asymmetric. It's not." Ideal. This isn't what we would choose in an ideal world, but it's not an ideal world. Um, if the overall strategic environment gets better, obviously Russia is going to be less comfortable with this idea of being a, a junior partner to China. Now, what that would look like, of course, is is another question. Let's talk about some of the sources of of tension between Russia and China, because there's a lot of discussion here in in Washington about the the growth of this partnership and the the sign of Russian challenge to the United States or to the liberal international order. Um, but there are still these these areas of friction. Central Asia is is certainly one. I think the mismatch between the economic potential of the two is is another. Certainly in the Russian military, there's concern about how much sensitive technology Russia is comfortable transferring to China. What do you assess as being the most important sources of friction and, and how important are they in terms of, of limiting the, the, the scope for, for this rapprochement to develop into something more like an alliance? So adding to the list of uh, examples, I would add, you know, the race for the Arctic. Mm -hmm. And I'd also add, you know, just tensions over borders in many capacities, even beyond, you know, the, the Russia-China border. But I would say the greatest point of sensitivity is Central Asia. To me, the expansion of China's position in Central Asia doesn't begin with Belt and Road Initiative, even though that extended mm -hmm. it. It's already been well over a decade that China has been the greatest investor in the mm -hmm. region the most significant trade partner for mm -hmm. all of these Central Asian countries. And it seems to me that Russia has no choice but to accept this. And that doesn't mean that that relationship and China's role in Central Asia are not sources of frustration and uh, disappointment. As I mentioned in the memo, there's something very familiar to me about what's happening in terms of the expansion of Chinese trade and military interests in Central Asia, its investment in infrastructure and in pipelines and roads and ports and bridges, everything, you know, the, the investments through the Built and Road Initiative are so significant in Central Asia. And this has displaced Russian influence. And even if Russia does find this to be dismissive of its interests now, it's in no position to assert that. Mm -hmm. However, down the line, there may be a delayed reaction, and that would only be possible with reassertion of Russian interests and uh, position, the, the power to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's reminiscent of the delayed reaction to the expansion of Western uh, trade and military alliances with Eastern Europe and the Baltics that came about really only when Russia started to recover strength under President Putin. Otherwise, these things were rather downplayed, but it became such a great source of tension that the reorientation of its former fellow Soviet republics, right, its sphere of interest, that became such a source of tension that it resulted in the war in Ukraine, the annexation of Crimea. So you could imagine that, you know, the delayed response to Russian military and commercial engagement in Central Asia could follow a similar path. Yeah, I think there's an important question that is really a question. We don't entirely know the answer to it, but that is, to what extent does Russia view Central Asia through the same prism that it views, say, Eastern Europe through? I mean, yes, both Ukraine and 
Uzbekistan or post-Soviet republics. Um, but it seems to me that they they hold a different place in general Russian mental maps and, and strategic thinking. Um, now, again, we talk about Central Asia as though it's one thing, and obviously there's a lot of diversity within Central Asia. And a country like Kazakhstan, which has a 7,000 plus kilometer border with Russia and has a, a large ethnic Russian population in the north, has a greater sensitivity than a country like, say, Turkmenistan does. Um, and I think you can envision a scenario where a growth of Chinese interest in an environment of, of worsening Sino-Russian relations um, in a country like Kazakhstan really does become um, a sensitive issue that Russia feels that it needs to respond in a, in a serious way to. Um, whether it has that same understanding of an expansion of Chinese interest in, say, Turkmenistan or Tajikistan, um, seems to me less certain. Um, and I think the other important thing here is that, you know, Russian sensitivities about what was going on in Ukraine and, and Eastern Europe more generally, that first of all, it really started with NATO. Um, so it was about the kind of military, per perceived military threat. And second, it I don't think was the cause of the alienation between Russia and the West so much as it was a symptom of, of a problem that had already been festering for other reasons, um, which then you know, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine only made the problem worse. Um, you know, I've written a few things where I I'm, uh, express a little skepticism of the idea that Russia and China will fall out over Central Asia. I think there's certainly a possibility that Russia and China fall out for one reason or another, and that Central Asia becomes a contested area between them. But as a driver... But isn't it always that way? Well, I mean, there has do, to be Do you buy into the narrative, right? Do you buy into the narrative that, that Ukraine really was not a real country, that Ukraine was somehow, what was this term, phantom limb, that somehow yeah, you phantom think limb of it... Syndrome. Right, that you think of it as still part of you, even mm -hmm. though it's severed and even though it's no longer part of you, that you mm -hmm. still feel as if it's part of you. So those were the narratives that were yeah. used to justify the position. But I think history can be manipulated a lot. Your sure. point's well taken that some some narratives uh, stick better than others. Mm -hmm. But your example of Kazakhstan is, is really the best one where you could say the large Russian population needs to be defended. Again, I just can spin out a scenario whether it makes sense in mm -hmm. today's world uh, – it's true. It doesn't really resonate. But I wouldn't have thought the statement that Eastern Europe shouldn't be part of the European Union or part of NATO about 15 years later. Mm -hmm. I don't think I would have anticipated this to, to rankle in this way, that it would it would be such an irritant. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's, it's easy to see in hindsight and I think hard to anticipate 15 or, or more years out. Personally, I, I do think Ukraine occupies a different place in this sort of mental geography uh, of Russian of most Russian. Russians than than Central Asia does, and it, you know there are historical and cultural reasons for that. But you know, again, Kazakhstan, the ethnic Russian population there, if there's going to be a flashpoint between Russia and China in Central Asia, that seems like the most likely. Right. Well, the story would have to take a different tack, right? It can't be based on you know this is the beginning of 
Mother Russia and Kiev Rus. It would need its own yeah. storyline. So it would be something different. But it could very well be based, as you said, on the number of Russians and Russian speakers and people who identify with Russia living in Kazakhstan being treated in a way that somehow seemed to be problematic. But again, I don't think it's because that is the source of the problem, but mm -hmm. it becomes the excuse for intervention right. it can and become, escalation. Yes, it can become something that contributes to escalating a problem that's already there. So to come back to Putin and Xi, we talked about this a little bit on the panel, but you know, the Moscow City Duma elections just happened. And it was pretty clear that there's a lot of people, at least in Moscow, who are not happy with the, the status quo uh, in Russia and voted for oppositionists of various kinds. Now, with all the qualifications that Moscow is not Russia and that you know, a lot can change in, in five years' time. We are coming up on the period where Putin and, and the Russian government generally have to think about the succession question, you know, whether it's the succession from Putin to Putin or from Putin to something else. Um, but there has to be a, a decision made there. What role do you think China is going to play in that calculation? And how would Russia, led by somebody who's not Vladimir Putin, affect the relationship with China? No, that's a great question. Clearly, President Putin is not invincible, despite his best efforts to <laughs> let us think that. And so at some point, the relationship will be tested when there's a different leader in power. We don't know if President Xi will be there as well, even if he certainly hopes to extend. Yeah, his yes. you know, constitution seems to yes. suggest he he'll is, be around for a He has codified while. that. But nonetheless, you know, people do die. <laughs> people do sometimes not control their circumstances. There could be coups. There could be all mm -hmm. sorts of things. I have no idea. But the truth is, at some point, there will be two turnover. So how much of this relationship depends on those two men? I think at this point, it is significant. But as they continue to deepen ties, as they continue to integrate, and as uh, their relationship with the West and the United States in particular continues to deteriorate, I don't know that it will be so dependent upon those two personalities. Mm -hmm. But right now, it seems to be significant. Something that we discussed briefly in the panel was, you know, the relationship at the elite level versus at the mass level. Mm -hmm. And at the elite level, you see all sorts of um, formal proclamations of friendship. At the level of state-owned enterprises, you see all sorts of integration and collaboration. Mm -hmm. But at the level of, of ordinary people, it's not so clear yeah. that this is going to be so smooth. So that would take time. And again, we don't know whether or not these two leaders will be able to extend their tenure so long that you can mm -hmm. transform sort of the relationship between the peoples. It doesn't seem that likely because that does take time. Yeah. Nonetheless, uh, at this point, that relationship is is crucial. Yeah. I know the, the declarations that they sign in, adopt increasingly flowery language to describe the, the relationship. So is it like the comprehensive strategic partnership of coordination or something like that? <laughs> and it's sort of like how if you're the democratic people's socialist republic of, of whatever, the more adjectives you throw onto it, the more skeptical you have to become. Yes, they they protest too much, right? They yeah. try a little too hard, and you've got to wonder what they are trying to to do. To cover for. Yeah, what are they covering? What are they compensating for? And it does seem that it's very much intended to show how both of those leaders are good at building alliances at a time when the U.S. is actually suffering from strained alliances mm. with all sorts of countries, including traditional allies. Yeah, right. Some of whom are eager to build ties with, well, both Russia and China because of their own need to hedge. So at the mass level, I mean, do you have a good sense of, of how much support there is for this, this rapprochement, this, this course towards uh, closer ties? 
Unfortunately, I don't, but I did find the other panels that were talking about public uh, opinion surveys mm-hmm. to be helpful. What I found really interesting was that uh, sort of this discovery that there's a lot of ambivalence and the survey research shows not very many negative answers about attitudes toward each other, but yeah. ambivalence, no answer, un- don't mm-hmm. know. So that means that there's possibility of those values, those um, impressions to evolve Right? They're, maybe they're not that stuck. They're not that rigid. Nonetheless, I they're don't malleable. know. Right? They're malleable. And, and I would expect that they could be used politically in a way that's that's helpful to the leaders. So it's it wasn't very negative. It was more positive than anything else. But again, that public opinion research suggests that there's the possibility of the peoples themselves having more positive impressions of each other. But again, you know, there's very interesting data. Angela Stent in her work on Russia, China has talked about how few Russian students go and study in China, right. how many Chinese students still are going to the mm-hmm. West for their education and not to Russia. So yeah. these kinds of choices will say a lot. Yeah. Well, and, you know, if you look at the the upper echelons of the Russian bureaucracy, including places like the foreign ministry, the people at the top are not sinologists. They're all people who have focused on, trained in, specialized in the West. And there's a certain, I wouldn't say bias necessarily, but kind of Western centrism in the way that the Russian elite constitutes itself. And yeah, you see it in things like where Russian students go, uh, where Russians own property, uh, where they go on vacation, where um, they want to do business. And there does seem to be a, a still a, a preponderance of all of those things in, in Europe, especially more than the United States, but certainly more than China too. I agree. I think we we notice that so much status is still associated with things from the West. And there's Mm -hmm. also the protection that property rights regimes provide in a way that you don't have uh, for Chinese investors in Russia and vice versa. Right. You know, if you're a Russian oligarch, but not even an oligarch, if you're just a Russian who's worried about the political environment in your country and you're looking for a a bolt hole somewhere, Europe looks like a much better bet than China. Certainly. And that's when you think about how much interest is still in the West relative to China, it's really shocking given China's economic prowess, right? You think that this would all be true and would take time to change, but when you've got the presence of China mm-hmm. and in purchasing power, parity and economy, you know, on par with the United States, it's extraordinary that more people aren't learning Chinese. Chinese, right? Yeah. Certainly they would see opportunity there. And so what does that say? In the presence of a powerhouse like China, an economic powerhouse like China, why aren't there more young Russians wanting to go and be there? Some are going. Yeah. But the numbers were, you know, that she cites, Angela Stent cites, were, were Comparatively shockingly small. low. Yeah, I mean, China's an enormous economic powerhouse and it has, as you were talking about before, um, lots of investment capital available that it splashes around all over the world, including in the former Soviet Union, including in Russia. A lot of places there's been uh, sensitivities that have been touched off by this influx of of Chinese capital and there have been protests against um, environmental degradation, debt, um, employment of Chinese workers rather than than locals and and various other things. Um, How much of a problem is this in Russia? I find the portrayal of Russian, uh, sorry, of Chinese capital around the world to be incredibly hypocritical and and almost a misunderstanding of how 
we've talked about the values, the advantages of attracting foreign direct investment in the past. You know, for so long, countries were competing for capital. Countries were competing for these big investment deals. This was politically incredibly valuable at home, but also economically, it was mm -hmm. believed to be necessary for economic development and prosperity and job creation, that you need foreign capital in order to be successful. And that's been a development model, a growth model for many countries. China, less so. China was less reliant on foreign direct investment, and it was able to grow based on a lot of uh, domestic resources, but some foreign investment. However, Russia, Eastern Europe, even Central Asia, really was working hard to attract foreign direct investment into all sorts of industries. And so the idea that when it's Chinese money, it's not an unquestioned good, that in fact it may somehow entrap a country mm -hmm. or impoverish a country is a new uh, trope. It's not the way we've talked about FDI. FDI yeah. was the uh, gold standard of how you measured the efficacy of a government in terms of trying to be, you know, integrating in the international economy. So I find it interesting. And I think the fact that this narrative of, of a debt trap that we keep talking about in the Western press is really uh, hypocritical, that we don't understand yeah, are the you way... Are you better off being indebted to the IMF or to China? Or does it matter? Yes, but even in terms of forcing countries, if they wanted to be part of the European Union, or even if they wanted an association agreement with mm -hmm. the European Union, they had to open up uh, property to foreign investors. Mm -hmm. Those foreign investors were often European, and sometimes they were able to buy up all sorts of property um, without competitive bids because there was pressure right. for countries to uh, liberalize their capital accounts, liberalize their um, laws on foreign ownership. And this was a very tense process. So it was not easy for Poland to allow Germans to mm -hmm. come in and buy <laughs> yeah. land. It was right. a very big deal. But they were told, <laughs> you don't do that. You don't join the European Union. Mm -hmm. And so Alexander Snyder Lee does some really interesting work on heavy industry and how mm -hmm. important it was to allow these countries to uh, sorry to force these countries to allow foreign investors often from western europe yeah. to come in and buy up all sorts of very sensitive industries and they were sensitive in terms of their role in their economy but also politically because these were major employers often in concentrated areas and right. so and they provide social services social and services and it was very difficult so the idea that there was now a new story that foreign capital is nefarious mm -hmm. is so new when in fact that the dominant paradigm after communism was you need to integrate in the global economy, mm -hmm. open yourself up to foreign trade, open yourself up to foreign capital. And it created dependent market economies in much of Eastern Europe. Uh, but that was considered to be the model mm -hmm. for growth. So now that China is the, the new source of capital, and not just in Eastern Europe, but even Western right. Europe, right? You think of Italy. and But it, it, the the suspicion around the free flow of capital is new. And I think it's very much related to suspicion about yeah, China, China and more China. Generally. Yeah, yeah, China generally. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's partially that. I think it's partially the fact that in the Chinese case, it's often state-directed and, and state-led. It's true. It's not, it's not private capital. But I think another important difference is that very much people feel that infrastructure is more sensitive than industry. Right. But Which, again, yeah, land, sure land is sensitive. Land is sensitive. And it was very difficult to allow foreign investors to come in and buy up land in Eastern yeah. Europe. 
Yeah. And I think the other area of sensitivity, and this is one that there's a lot of discussion now around with the, with the Belt and Road and, and with the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank is around um, conditionality and standards and, you know, what kinds of what kinds of reforms are countries being encouraged or forced to implement as a condition of receiving foreign investment. And if the, the Western model certainly in the 1990s and 2000s was, you know, liberalize your capital account, allow foreign ownership, um, you know, impose certain standards of, of governance and, and everything else. Um, you know, that was seen as a way of promoting political transformation towards, I don't necessarily like the term Washington consensus, but we can use it. Um, and the danger or the concern with Chinese and other uh, state-led investment from outside the West is it doesn't come with that same kind of conditionality. Right. But there are other conditions that we didn't recognize early on. So China claimed to have no strings attached in its lending, but it did have certain trends that suggest it cared about foreign policy and mm -hmm. countries that may have been critical of the one China policy right. were going not to be get ineligible. Right? They weren't going yes. to get investment. So in truth, they can pronounce that this is no strings attached and mm -hmm. you know lending without conditions. It's just a different, kind, a different of kind of conditionality. Of conditions. And yeah. the conditionality of the West was predicated upon the idea that they just want to get paid back. They want to be recovering. Mm -hmm. They want these countries, sorry, to recover. That's what it was driven by. But still, there was an ideology that drove yeah. the prescriptions that were given for economic recovery. And yes. so privatization was based on the idea that private ownership is more efficient. People mm -hmm. use private resources more effectively. Right. And yet that still is mixed up with the idea that who are the people who are benefiting from privatization? Sometimes it's the foreign investors who came in and now had access to all sorts of property that mm -hmm. had been inaccessible. So right. it's not – It's not. Um, I don't think when I interpreted this at the time, because my first book was on privatization, I saw this as anything other than people truly believing in a certain way way of organizing your economy. I don't mm -hmm. think it was self-interestedness. Self yeah, self-dealing or mm -hmm. self-interested. But nonetheless, there were winners and losers. Yeah, sure. And it's hard, well, you know, both the for, and the foreign among foreigners, foreign investors, but also within these individual a countries. Absolutely. And I think so. this is, you know, in Russia, where a lot of the hostility to marketization and, and to democracy comes from, because there was this perception in the 1990s that tried this prescription, and it ended up enriching people who had political connections um, and impoverishing everybody else. Right. We did what mm. you said, and look, yeah, where look that what left we got. Us, right. We we were poor. We were not growing. You know, there were great economic inequality. The, yeah, the credibility of the West and its model at mm -hmm. that point were undermined. And of course, China was not a serious model in the early 1990s, yeah, even though it had right. been growing. At this point, you have to take notice. There, you know, it doesn't matter what your ideology is or whether you believe China should be growing. It just it has is. been. And it is. And so you don't get to decide that this is the only model of economic growth. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but China is growing and it's investing. Um, and if you're a country in Central Asia or South Asia or Africa or wherever, and you need or you want investment for one thing or another, China is, is selling. Um, and that makes it attractive. Um, and especially since we've had our own financial crisis here and since there's been such a, a, a dearth of, of capital available for, for lending in the West, I think the, you know, the interest in China um, in countries that are looking for investment has only increased. 
Right. And again, we also thought that there was no real pattern to this investment, but there's a piece by Min Shin Pei, it was either in Foreign Policy or Foreign Affairs, about a year ago that was showing or arguing that, in fact, the pattern suggests that there's a preference for other autocrats, that certain kinds of regimes <laughs> were more likely to be recipients of foreign aid. And yeah. even if it wasn't deliberate or explicit, there is there are data that support this mm-hmm. pattern. Yeah. Right. Well, and if, you know, as you were saying, our, if our ideology is that liberal democracies are better about paying back their debts, I think, I don't know, but I suspect that there's a, a parallel belief in, in a country like China that maybe it's the other way around, that, you know, countries that have consolidated top-down political systems where, you know, if you need to turn the screws on somebody in order to get them to pay you back, you know where to go, that those kind of systems are more effective or, or are better at, at providing returns or, or paying back their debts. Hmm, interesting point. That's true. They may see it completely differently. Uh, you hear this from Russians. I don't know the, the Chinese case as well, but uh, the, you know that is a Russian argument. Like These countries are, are more stable. They're more predictable. They're easier to deal with. We, in some ways, prefer to deal with them. Okay, well, that's been, uh, it's been really interesting. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. All right, that is it for our show today. Thanks for joining us. Uh, there is a link to Hillary Apple's bio in the show notes uh, and also a link to the video of the panel that she spoke on here at CSIS. For those of you who haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating or a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on Google Play or SoundCloud. Also, uh, keep sending us your mailbag questions to rep at csis.org with the words Russian roulette in the subject line. Uh, We'll do another mailbag segment here shortly. Uh, Also, you should follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, or you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. And finally, of course, big thank you to everyone who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabidulina, and the whole CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening. Until next time. 